Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. My, uh, the topic of my talk tonight is uh, on religious pro-sociality research. As some of you probably know, I, um, because I've talked here about this to the group before, I teach a psychology of religion class, and I, might, I also do research in the area of psychology of religion. And so I often come across uh, studies and research and books and things that debate this issue of religion and things like pro-sociality, which is an academic nerdy way of just saying like being good, being moral. And so I myself have weighed into that topic in, the, in academia by um, publishing some articles on the topic that I'll refer to here. Um, but uh, the, as Jeff mentioned, the magazine thing for free inquiry is basically a, a, summary, a popular sort of summary of some of that work as well. The theory of religious prosociality is just a technical term for saying being religious, that religious belief makes people more prosocial, meaning that they are things like more generous, they give more to charity, they might volunteer more in their community because they're religious, or that they might be more uh, helpful to people. Arthur Brooks is a guy who, uh, I think he worked for the Cato Institute, but he made the argument that was um, somewhat controversial at the time that actually we think of, even though people think of liberals as being more bleeding heart and, and generous, that actually religious conservatives are more generous than liberals. So his book, Who Really Cares, kind of encapsulates that. Uh, that religious people give more to charity is his argument. Uh, some of you might remember David Myers, who's come to talk in front of our group a couple times throughout the years. He's at Hope College. He's a very prominent uh, psychology professor, and he publishes, you know, like psychology textbooks. His issue is, too, that, that religion uh, is, is good for people. He argues it's good for society, and so he actually gave a little rejoinder to the new atheist movement a few years ago uh, with this book there, The Friendly Letter to Skeptics and Atheists, uh, Why Religion is Good. So he argues, I'll give some specifics in a second, but he argues again that religious, religion makes people better people, better citizens. There's research in like personality field that, would, that shows that religious people are nicer. Their personalities are more agreeable to get along with other people. And uh, they tend to be better team players the argument with that is, is that they go along with group norms better. Um, so in, in essence, the, one of the um, pithy ways of putting this is that they're better neighbors. So Putnam, Robert Putnam, uh, some of you might remember he wrote a book about a decade ago called Bowling Alone, where he, his theories about religion as a social glue, it holds communities together. He just recently published a book called American Grace, uh, where he argues that religion makes people better neighbors. So I'm going to use these people as sort of um, spokespeople for this position as, as my foils, and I'll give examples of statements that they make and surveys and such that they refer to, and then I'm going to work with you to, to respond to those statements there. So as I mentioned, uh, typically it goes, it, uh, it goes along with that, that the hypothesis is that if religious people are better people, then it's the religion itself, that is, i.e., the belief system, that contributes to this pro-sociality. So uh, an article in the New York Times was summarizing some of this work, and it had a little cartoon there you could see with a little angel tying up the devil that says, uh, for good self-control, try getting religious about it. So the implication there is that religion is like a dose that you get that uh, can increase people's uh, pro-sociality. So let's start with some of the uh, arguments that are being made. Uh, as I mentioned, David Myers uh, makes the argument. Some of the things he talks about in his book are as he refers to data on things like uh, divorce and uh, things like uh, criminality records to show that, and I'll quote, uh, compared with never attenders, the most religiously engaged Americans, he means by that church attenders, were half as likely to be divorced and about one-fourth as likely to have been arrested. Uh, he refers to mental health research, which shows that be, the, more religious, uh, the more religiously devout are actually happier. So as you can see from that uh, graph there in the bottom left, that um, the never church attenders were, uh, there's much fewer of them that said that they were very happy compared to the frequent church attenders. You can see again, the assumption here is that, uh, as with this linear sort of increase, that the more religious 
people are, the more pro-social they are, or in this case, the happier they are. Putnam's book, as I mentioned, American Grace, he makes that same argument with this better neighbors thing. Let me just read a, a quote there because it captures that. Religious Americans are better neighbors than secular Americans. They volunteer at much higher rates for both religious and secular causes. They give more money to religious and secular charities, are roughly twice as engaged in their communities as comparable secular Americans, and they do more everyday good deeds. They're more likely to give to donate blood, or sorry, to donate blood, help someone find a job, give money to a homeless person, even let a stranger cut in front of them. Or Arthur Brooks, as I mentioned, with the charity issue and volunteering, he says, people who regularly practice their religion give and volunteer far more and more often than people who do not, uh, that do not practice any religion. You can see that in some of the data that these people refer to. A lot of these things are fairly massive surveys, like the Gallup World Surveys. They go into different countries and poll different people. Uh, and uh, what Brooks argues is borne out, as you see on that graph at the right, that people who give the highly religious people tend to give more for charity uh, than the less religious people. And so he points out, like I mentioned before, that actually uh, conservatives, religious conservatives, are more generous. The states that give the highest proportion of their money to charity are red states, not blue states. Uh, with volunteering, same deal, that when you ask people, uh, have you volunteered in the past month, the highly religious volunteer more than the less religious. So I could go on about this, but you can see that this is fairly, uh, this is fairly convincing argument. How is the secular to respond to that? So the, what I'm going to talk about tonight is let's look at some of these things in specific and see if they actually paint an accurate picture about religion or, or irreligion. So here's, uh, I'm going to ask you guys just to give a shout out here. What's, let's just t- talk about the charity data first. What sorts of things would you want to know about, uh, about these studies about religion and charitable giving? What about church-related charities? What about church-related charities? So essentially what you guys are saying is who's the source of the charity, if I'm gauging the room correctly? Who benefits? Now, if you recall, some of the quotes uh, were careful about that. and They said that the religious people give more even to secular charities, but that's one of the issues I want to talk about. The largest recipient of charitable giving are religious charities. So if you look at the pie graph there, that relig- about a third of all charitable giving goes to religious, specifically religious sources. Interestingly, when you start to slice and dice this data, uh, like that red state, blue state data, when you factor out the data that goes to churches, like tithing, for example, it shifts. And then the blue state people look more generous than the red state people. So there is an argument to be made that uh, religious people do tend to give more when it's a religious target, if you want to think of it that way, when the charity is a religious target. Now, the problem is, is that a lot of these studies don't differentiate between clearly religious targets and secular targets. So I came up with one example of a fairly, uh, Boston College does this philanthropy survey, and I noticed they had similar data that religious groups, people are more generous or religious to, uh, than, than secular people. But when I looked at how they defined religious giving, for one, that was a very narrow category. It was churches and houses of worship. When I looked at their secular giving, because remember the argument is that religious people give even more even to secular causes, the definition of secular included, and this is more or less a quote, gifts to a school program or hospital run by a religious organization or those that would agree embody spiritual values. So like St. So-and-so's hospital, they considered a secular charity because it's a hospital. Now, to me, that strikes that a little bit like, well, okay, they're using the secular definition fairly broadly. Anything but a church is essentially secular. Or like, I'm from a small town. A lot of the people that staffed secular charities in my town were really the church people. So when you worked with, you know, Reverend Bob on Habitat for Humanity, that wasn't a, a lot of those people didn't think of that as being a secular charity. Now, why is this important? This, this tends to be a problem with this real-life data because it's almost hopelessly blurred. When you ask people to report, well, how much of your money was to this place versus that place, they're not very good at separating those two things. So I would argue, uh, being a psychologist, the best way to do is do experiments. You can control for these sorts of things in the laboratory. Now, one of the ways that people measure generosity and uh, things like that in the laboratory is to do controlled like economic games where they have people come in and you could identify, you know, who's religious or not beforehand by giving them surveys, but then you could pair them up with people and see if they're more generous or less generous to people that are depicted as being religious or not themselves. In essence, you could do a fully controlled design. So some of the common things that are used in the laboratory are called uh, economic games like the dictator game. It sounds harsh, but basically what you do is you give one person some money, let's say 10 bucks, to person A, and then you say, okay, there's person B, they're going to be your partners. You can give them 
as much as you want or as little as you want, but at the end of it, then they get to walk away with whatever money you give them, and you get to walk away with what you keep. So that's why it's dictated. So if I was scrupulously fair, I would say, okay, I got 10 bucks, I'm going to give you five, and I'll keep five. But a lot of people don't do that. They say, I'll give you three and keep seven. So it's usually uh, that sort of thing is a measure of generosity. How would you be fair with another person? There's other games that are more complicated that involve things like your trust in these partners. Like, uh, would you be willing to kick in some of the money that the experimenter gave you if it could go to a common pot and trusting that other people would do the same thing? And then everybody gets more money back as a result. It's almost like a, uh, uh, an investment strategy. That tends to measure things like cooperation and trust. Now, long story short, when you look at some of this experimental data, it does tend to show, and, and often these are the studies you see, even in experiments, religious people are more generous and trusting. Uh, but, like we were just talking about it, when you break that down by who they're paired with, it turns out that they are more generous and trusting, but only when the other partner is religious or could be presumed to be religious. That is, when the partner they're paired with is explicitly not religious, if I'm a, let's say I'm a, I'm religious and I'm paired with an atheist or with a, somebody who's not the correct religion, the generosity crashes. So it's clear that they're making a distinction there between in and out group members. So, for example, some of these studies show that religious partners, when they're assigned to somebody, everybody trusts them more. That is even, and this is a little bit hard to believe, but even non-religious subjects, if they're paired with a religious partner, they tend to advance them more money. So there does tend to be almost a stereotypic element that religious people are more trustworthy. But when you slice and dice the data, again, as it turns out, the only situation in which religious people are clearly more generous is when they're paired with somebody who can be presumed to also share their religion. When they're paired with people who are secular, they're not as generous. Similarly, uh, there's some studies that show when they're, people use late, uh, even subtle identifying information. This was cute because I thought the, the person was, is at a college and they said, you're paired with a person and here's their profile, their bio. They have a major listed. People, if, uh, if the partner had a religious studies major, they were trusted with more money than if they were a business major. That's probably wise, though, with business people. But, um, so clearly people are using information as gauges of religious identity. Now, another way to do this, uh, I think some of the most interesting work is in a laboratory situation, is uh, to activate, put religion on people's minds, essentially. There's a whole line of work. You might have seen headlines that say when people are asked to think about religious things, it makes them more generous, friendly, and whatever. That's called priming. So priming is similar to what you, what, uh, you might have heard of in advertising as subliminal advertising, where it doesn't even have to be conscious. You can flash words on a screen. Uh, one of the tasks is you can have people do word puzzles that you slip in a certain content, like the scrambled sentence game. You have people uh, rearrange words and drop a word to make a sentence, and you can slip in words that are religious. So some of the studies I'm going to show you, they do things like um, they mix in things like spirit or, you know, Bible or something like that. They, they counterbalance that with other words, but it's really to get people thinking even on an unconscious level about religious stuff. And as it turns out, it does tend to make people more generous. So this, the studies that grab the headlines are reminding people of religion makes them more friendly and generous and whatnot. Uh, sometimes they use visual images like these ones here. When you prime people with pictures and there's some artwork and then they'll put a picture of Jesus in there, uh, it makes people more generous and friendly. Now, they've paired these two types of studies up, priming and then the economic games I just talked about. And uh, so when you flash religious pictures on a screen or have people do religious words, it makes them more generous with their offers. Now, the theory as to why this works is basically called moralistic audience. If I'm reminding somebody of God, that God's watching me, the theory goes, that provides an audience that I think I have to really watch my step. So uh, one prominent psychologist says that the belief that one's actions are constantly and inescapably being observed by a divine being may be a strong stimulus and reminder to be aware of one's actions uh, and that it prompts them to evaluate their behaviors against a higher religious ideal. So notice that hypothesis refers specifically to God's watching you. So you better be generous. It's like Santa Claus, but, but even more. Now, let me give an example of some of the studies there, and I'll show you the, what I think to be a flaw in some of these work. Here's an example of, uh, by Sharif and Narenzayan, where they, in fact, primed people using that sentence task, and then they gave them that dictator thing. Here's a 10 bucks. You can make an offer to the other person. You keep whatever you want. Give them whatever you want. Now, there are some people in a control condition where they weren't given any priming. That's in the yellow bars there. You can see on the left-hand side, those, that's people who kept all the money for themselves and gave zero to the other person. The $5 thing would be, I'm going to give you five and I'm going to keep five. Uh, 
Uh, there are some chumps at the other end that gave 10 bucks and kept nothing for themselves. No, no, you keep it all, really. Um, you can see that the religious priming here in the red bars, that's the condition that got those religious words mixed in. In fact, they did make them more generous. It shifted people more in the, I'm going to give you more money. Most people were fair, essentially. So one of the take-home things from that paper was priming with religion makes people more generous. Now, here's a couple of things, though. One is, interestingly, they had data on the subjects themselves, whether they were religious or not. And it turned out that how religious the subjects were in this study didn't predict anything. That is, it didn't seem to interact with the primate at all. Even secular subjects, when primed with religion, were more generous. Why would that be the case, that priming secular people who might not even believe in God with God-like words, why would that make them more generous, too? Yeah, cultural norm, a stereotype. Now, here's the thing, though. Luckily for us, they did another version of this study where they added a third condition. And the words weren't religious. They were civic sort of primes that were like these. Civic, jury, court, police, contract. This was before the day, but they, they didn't add, like, Obama as monitoring you. But um, these, So clearly, these were designed to activate a similar thing of you're being watched or there's a social contract, but they weren't religious. Long story short... Here's the results. That is, it worked equally well with the religious words at making people more generous. So you can see the blue ones and the red ones were essentially identical. Priming, priming with religion did make people more generous, but so did priming with secular-like words. This is the sort of thing that makes you wonder that interpretation that I just mentioned about a divine audience of God watching you is not really, it's only partially true. That is, that might make people behave more, but any type of reminder that's a third party other people watching you. Or even, and here's some of the studies that uh, they, look, they look at things like putting eye spots on the wall next to the computer, then they measure whether you're going to cheat or not. They have the same effect of making people more honest. Or uh, here's the most basic one, putting a mirror in the room. When you put a mirror where the people can see themselves, they don't cheat. Uh, uh, the, reminding people of categories like superheroes makes them more honest too. Or, and this was my favorite, reminding people that a student had died in that building and that their ghost had been known to haunt the hallways also makes them generous, too. So I always wondered how that goes where the experimenters were like, okay, well, we're going to sit you in this room. Listen, uh, you might not care. It would be like The Shining or something like that, really. So this, this might seem kind of amusing, but you could see that it has, that it has an, an effect on how you interpret these studies. That is, the religious concepts did make people more honest, but it wasn't uniquely religious. For all the reasons I just said, it didn't have a unique effect on the person themselves. It didn't matter whether they were religious or not. And it didn't matter that the, the religious concepts were among other things, like civic things that can make you more honest. But here's the other thing that I think is a little bit more ominous. Guess what other things happen when you prime people with religious-type concepts? It makes people more uh, in-groupy. That is, uh, some of the studies that have looked at things like uh, not just generosity, but things like whether they're willing to ding people that are not members of their group or even be outright racist. So when you prime people with Christian words, it makes white subjects more prejudiced towards African Americans. When you prime people with religious words and give them an opportunity to be aggressive, it makes people more aggressive. Uh, when you, when the, there's some clever experiments where the, uh, this, I think this is, I'm twisted, but this is funny to me, where the, experimental, the experimenter tells you you're working with a partner who's in the other room and it comes back with things like, oh, the partner just graded your essay with an F. We should get back at him. Would you like to get back at him and grade him with an F? Then he doesn't get paid. So the experimenter basically like, puts a, a bait on the line of, would you like to retaliate against this, this person in the other room? They just did something nasty to you. Turns out that people were more willing to retaliate against somebody when primed with religious words. So in essence, it, it makes people more vengeful in that case. So this, you can see there's a dual aspect to this. Priming with religion does make people more pro-social when they're given the opportunity, but it also makes people more aggressive. It makes them less forgiving of people. Uh, it decreases even their intentions to do that volunteering that we talked about before. Community volunteering goes down often when you prime them with certain types of religious concepts like that grumpy god there. Uh, when you have authoritarian God images, it depends on what sort of religious things you're priming people with. Nice things like that smiling Jesus picture before does make people more friendly, but when you have nasty God things that you prime people with, it makes them more authoritarian. So I was going to show you a clip with Homer. Uh, he has, has one of those 3D pictures. When you turn the picture, the image shifts. You can see there he is. He's doing loving God, vengeful God, loving God, vengeful God. It's like that with religious stimuli too. It depends on what sort of aspects of religion are being emphasized. 
So when you, uh, the, the critique here that I have of studies is when you set studies up to show the good side of religion, no surprise, it does correlate with a lot of pro-social things. So people are more generous and mentally healthy when that's the criteria. But if you set the study up to look at things like authoritarianism, uh, in-group prejudice, or you include types of religion that are like fundamentalism, you find that it makes people more those things too. So in essence, if you want to think of this in a Venn diagram way, I, I talk about this in some of my classes, there is an overlap between religion and things like prejudice, racial prejudice or sexual orientation prejudice. What studies often do, though, is they try to say, well, there's probably some third variables there that it's not just the religion, like authoritarianism, the trait of being more authoritarian, so things like uh, obedient to existing authority or willingness to persecute outgroups. It's almost like a personality trait. And it turns out, damn if it isn't true, that many religious people are also authoritarians. What studies often do is they try to remove that statistically and say, well, what if you could have religious people who aren't authoritarian? Would it still be correlated with prejudice? And it turns out that you can do that statistically. It looks something like this. You can see I carved out the middle there. That is, religion uh, is no longer correlated with prejudice once you remove the fact that many religious people are high on authoritarianism. So the way to state that verbally would be, if you do control for this authoritarian characteristic, religion isn't related to prejudice just pure religion itself. But, as I guess I would argue, in real life, there is an overlap between religion and being an authoritarian. So uh, if you could find religious people who are more liberal and not authoritarian, you probably wouldn't correlate with things like prejudice. Now here's another critique that I have about the studies, and this involves the comparison. You'll notice here, this is the quote I put up there before from David Myers. He says, uh, compared with never attenders, the most religiously engaged Americans are less likely to be divorced, yada, yada. Or he says things like, with the happiness, religiously engaged people are happier. Or with Brooks's argument, people who regularly practice religion are more generous. Who are they comparing the highly, highly religious people to? So if you look at the graph, I don't know if you could read that, but the, the bottom level comparison there is never attend church. Or in a Brooks's study, when you look at the generous charitable giving part, the people he's comparing the church attenders with are people that he calls, and I put in quotes, secular, because his definition is attending less than a few times a year or who say that they have no religion. Are people who, is everybody who attends church less than a few times a year atheists? No, in fact, when you look at surveys, and this is the uh, almost a bait-and-switch element of these studies, that is, they compare these sorts of people, the frequent religious church attenders, and then sometimes they'll have like, you know, the whole range of people in the middle, moderate church attenders. But who's the opposite of that? Who's the opposite of a Flanders type? The opposite of religious often are just a wastebasket category. The, the nuns, the people who say they don't have any religion, or infrequent church attenders, like that. You can see that uh, that includes different types of people there. You could be either a very, an atheist or a confidently secular person, or you could just be a unsure Religious, but yet I don't go to church. Uh, I'm nominally religious. That makes a difference. If you even, even studies that are just general surveys, you can see right away that there's a gap there. There are highly religious people, uh, but there's also people, the weekly church attendance, for example, only about a third of Americans go to church every week. And at the other end of things, about 15% of Americans say that they're nuns. They don't identify with the religion, but only about 6% are complete atheists and agnostics. So who's the majority of that group? They're religious, but none. Now, why am I harping on that? I would argue that that makes a difference when you look at some of these criteria. So David Myers talked about the divorce rate. Let's look at the divorce rate by some of these groups. Uh, about 12% of Americans, on average, are divorced at this current time. And that is the same when you just look at mainline Protestant people like Lutherans or Methodists and such. And it's actually the same for the unaffiliated. Now, some religious groups do have a slightly lower rate of divorce. So Catholics and Mormons have a lower rate of divorce. Some have a higher rate of divorce. So like... Uh, historically black denominations and evangelical Protestants have a slightly higher rate of divorce than the national average. But it's the same for the secular people. People who are religious but unaffiliated, that is, they believe in God or they just aren't a member of a church, have a higher divorce rate than people who are atheists and agnostics. So David Myers is correct that these frequently church-attending, highly religious people do tend to have a lower divorce rate, but so do the people who are completely non-religious. And you can think about, you can generate yourself some hypothesis as to why that's the case. Uh, what's different about a nun or a religious but not church attender from a complete atheist? 
You can even see that in some of the data that these people refer to, but it doesn't really get mentioned in the summary because it's more complicated. So uh, some of that Gallup poll data that I was talking about before, when they actually don't look at just highly religious, low religious, when they provide a continuum, you see a funny thing happening here. That is, look at the highly, it is true that the very religious people have higher well-being. So this is things like happiness, physical health, health behaviors, like taking care of themselves. But higher compared to who? One thing is that you could see that the lines are bent in that the non-religious people actually are also more happy and healthy than the moderately religious people. It's those people that have the worst mental and physical health. Now, even my quibble with this one is even their non-religious category includes people who simply say, uh, I don't go to church seldom or ever. But the point that I'm making, uh, this is why is it that, they, that you have this curved effect? People who are moderately religious seem to be worse off than either the very religious or the completely non-religious. You see that actually all over the place. Some of you might remember if you went to my talk a couple years ago, I did surveys of groups like this one, uh, CFI groups, on similar types of things. I did a, tr- a survey where I pooled together church people and secular group people like CFI members on measures of well-being, and I found this sort of thing. Again, it was true that the highly religious people, in this case, uh, the categories are strength of belief in God. Are you absolutely sure that God exists? or not sure, or absolutely certain that God doesn't exist, and you find this curved effect. It was true that the highly religious people who absolutely believe in God were happier, or more emotionally stable, than the people in the middle, but it goes back up at the other end. The completely non-religious people were also happy. I would argue because of that effect, and because of this lumping together of people, most studies don't even really get at this religion makes you better pro-social thing. Really what they test is something along the lines of this. Engaged religious people are more pro-social than less engaged religious people. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, though. I can see why they don't say that, but that's really a more accurate way to describe this. It's the less engaged people that are worse off. So when I've made this argument before, and I've had this debate in the literature with people like David Myers and such, and I say things like that, like, well, completely non-religious people are more pro-social than the wishy-washy, the less religious people. He says things like this. Well, yes, but uninvolved belief, that is the non-attenders, that's not really a true effect of a full-bodied religion. Now, I think that that is um, similar to, some of you might remember the true Scotsman fallacy from your rhetoric classes. A true Scotsman fallacy is where you try to preserve the people that you want to look at as being the, the best category. So it goes like this. If somebody says a Scotsman is always a gentleman, and another person points out, yeah, but Sean Connery is not really a gentleman, is he? The response is, well, he's not a true Scotsman. That is, they've, they've eliminated the bad people from that category, and they could retain the good people. That's what uh, that sort of argument that I just mentioned reminds me of, of that's not truly religious. Because w- when somebody says, religion is pro-social, and people like me say, well, yes, but it's also authoritarian influence, or also these uninvolved religious people, they're not as pro-social as the atheists, People like that uh, respond by saying, well, but that's not full-bodied, engaged religion. It seems a very similar argument to me. Because essentially what they're arguing is pro-social religious people are more pro-social. Again, not exactly a headline-grabbing finding. I can see why they don't really use that in the literature to describe it. But really, that's all that's being found here. This is a diagram that I include in the magazine article. When you expand out the people at that low end of the religion, you actually find what I would argue is another sort of mini-continuum of the low religious people. You have people, like I mentioned, who are religious but unaffiliated. They believe in God, but they don't really care either way. Sometimes you have spiritual but not religious people that captures a few percentage points in each survey. But then you have the people that are more increasingly, I guess, uh, organized secular types like this, atheists, people that, are, uh, that define themselves as being secular humanists. So even within that group, I would say that you have a parallel continuum of confidence, of worldview, if you want to label that as such, something like that. One of the studies I recently worked on that tries to get at this is I wanted what I thought to do a more fair comparison. People who are religious and members of a church lined up with their parallel, you know, bizarre world comparisons of people who are strongly atheist and aligned with a strongly atheist social group. Some of you might have heard of the Coalition of Reason. I had a chance to collaborate with their group in Texas. Uh, The Dallas-Fort Worth Coalition of Reason has a bunch of groups kind of like this one that get together for various reasons. And I thought that's a good uh, chance to compare them with people that live in that same area who are organized church believer types to compare those with these organized secular types. And then we'll see, does religious belief make a difference? 
So I had, uh, I had the group hand out some surveys that I worked on for me, asking about some of the things that we've been talking about, pro-social stuff, volunteering, donations within their group as well as outside their group. But I also want to ask about things like uh, what's called parochialism, a certain narrowness of worldview. Do you only want to hang out with people like you? Uh, do you not trust other people? Do you have limited contact with those people that are of a different race uh, from yourself or different religious views? Because I think, like we talked about, often religious influences reflect that as well. And then I put in a bunch of control variables, just their demo demographics, things like gender and income. Really what I was trying to do here was see, does the religious belief add anything to this? That is, once we know that somebody's a member of a group and they have a confident religious or non-religious worldview, does believing in God make any difference either way? And here's what I found so far. I'm still working on this, though. When you just do a straight-up comparison of the two types of groups, church people, secular group people, it does look like the church people are more pro-social for the reasons we just talked about. They give more money to charity. They volunteer more often. When you control for some of the things I mentioned, though, a lot of that just gets chipped away. So when you control for things like uh, older people, for example, give more money because they have higher incomes, that sort of thing. As you might imagine, older people are also more likely to be church members than secular group members. People who attend whichever group tend to be more pro-social because they're joiners. They're busy bees that like to join groups and do stuff like community volunteering. When you add in at the last minute, does the religious content add anything? You find for community volunteering, no. That is, religious belief doesn't predict community volunteering once you control for all the other stuff. But when you ask, do you give money to your group, religion is a fairly strong predictor. That is, church members tend to give more money to their group more than secular members give to their group. Uh, but non-group donations, not so much. There was only a couple percentage points that religion really added to that. So again, like we talked about earlier at the beginning, uh, religious people are much more generous to their own group than they are to just uh, outside group sources there. So belief really didn't predict things like that are what I would argue would be more of benefit to the community, but it actually predicted in-group more than out-group donations. So you can see that kind of captures that dual aspect of religion. Oh, and the, I'm sorry, the, the parochialism too. It's more of a mixed picture. Religious people did look, on average, to be more trusting of others than the secular people did, although they had, as you might imagine, fewer interactions with different ethnic groups, people from different religions, uh, and they had more of a desire for their own kids to share their own view. All those things I consider measures of sort of your narrowness of your parochiality. But again, when you control for all these other things, it turns out that some things, uh, I'm sorry, I went back. Uh, when you look at uh, interpersonal trust, really what mattered is being female. If you want to be tr more trusting of others, it looks like the church people have an advantage, but that's because more women are members of a church. So if you want to trust others, be female. But religion did predict things like uh, having restricted contacts with other religions or having a desire for your own children to share your own views. Those aspects of parochiality, religious belief, made people more parochial. Other things, it was just dumb old things like age. Older people tend to be a little bit more uh, stick within their own group. So really, um, I would argue that the, to sum up some of these results from the study, religion didn't make people more pro-social, that is the religious belief, as much as it did make them more groupy. That is, it made them more uh, tight with their group. Now, if you're another group member, if you happen to be another religious person, or if you're in a small town or something like that where everybody's religious, that's, that is pro-social from your perspective. But outside their own community, I would argue that it really doesn't make people universally pro-social. And actually, I was somewhat unfair to Putnam's book, because if you flip towards the back at page 400 and whatever, he does say something that's very striking, and this is what he says. He did the same thing with his data. Controlling for church attendance, religious beliefs turned out to be utterly irrelevant in explaining the religious edge and good neighborliness. The religiously-based social network predicted pro-sociality, such that even an atheist involved, this is his quote, even an atheist involved in the social life of a congregation is much more likely to volunteer in a soup kitchen than the most fervent believer who prays alone. That is, essentially, he's arguing uh, in there that it isn't. The religious beliefs is simply being a member of a tight-knit church group. Now, I kind of wish he would have said that. On the book jacket, it just simply says this. Religious Americans are better neighbors. I don't think that really captures what the nuance of what he's talking about. You also see, uh, what are the secular effects of being in a church group? That is, why do church people tend to be more groupy? One of the things is, still, I would argue, it's still not actually the religious belief. What churches do often is things that a social psychologist would like 
uh, would recognize immediately, and that is give people behavioral reminders and opportunities to be pro-social. They ask people to, to donate. The plate passes right underneath your nose. Instead of a jar on the outside, they have ATMs in the lobby just to let you know what, they, you, know, what, what you should do. A lot of these things are not really religious beliefs so much as they are secular reminders of pro-sociality within a religious context. There's a certain conforming to group standards. Hey, we're all going to go do volunteering next week. How about signing up? All that stuff really doesn't, or none of it really requires a, an endorsement of the religious beliefs themselves. What we know from other social psychology research is that religious people tend to be very good at planned helping more than secular people. So donations, charities, stuff that you can do ahead of time. Strangely enough, in spontaneous situations like a bystander helping, if somebody you know, that you don't even know falls over, would you help them? Religion tends to be less of a good predictor of that. And you can see that reflected in some of these things too. It allows them to, to generate their own targeted helping rather than being confronted spontaneously with that. The other thing I want to mention for you, I know a lot of you are more into the political thing. One of the comparisons like Brooks's thing of uh, liberals being less generous than conservatives is there's a problem even with that data too, and that is religion, uh, often religious conservatives prefer private charity to giving through governmental donations. And as many liberals will tell you, there might be some here, uh, giving through taxation, through governmental redistribution is also a way to give and be pro-social. So if you look at international data, like in the top there, it has uh, represented by coin stacks, how much private charity is given in the United States versus other countries as opposed to money that gets funneled through taxes through the government and then given to charities. So the United States, they're up in the bottom corner there. You can see we are more generous. You see these headlines all the time. Americans more generous than the rest of the world. We do give more in private charitable donations. But once you consider the amount of money that Americans give through taxation that goes to governmental redistribution to things like foreign aid, poverty, and things like that, we're not generous at all compared to other countries like Denmark and Japan. Here you can see that the most generous nations, once you factor in things like governmental programs, are the Scandinavian nations. Denmark, Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, New Zealand. When you factor in per capita, what everybody gives per you know, year to these sorts of things, uh, they're more generous than Americans because a lot of these other studies like Brooks's only looks at private charity. I would argue that private charity is not the only measure of how generous somebody is. The other thing I'll mention along the lines of international data is the context. All of the studies, no surprise, are done in the United States or North America where religion tends to be predominant. Funny thing happens, though, when you compare it to other countries where, like Northern Europe, where religion is not so predominant. Take the mental well-being findings I showed you before. Religious people are happier. It's true that religious people are happier in religious countries like the United States, but a funny thing happens when you look at non-religious countries. So what some of these studies did is look at the correlation between being religious and be having high well-being as a function of whether you're in a religious or non-religious country. So Poland, Turkey, those things that are on the right-hand side of the graph there, there is a correlation. If you're religious and you're a Pole or a Turk, you're happier. But when you look at the correlation between religion and happiness in non-religious countries like uh, Sweden, Germany, France, the correlation is essentially zero. Now, why would that be? I would argue that it's not even the religion that you're tapping into in some of these studies. And frankly, the relationship's not really that high still. But really, what probably contributes to happiness is not being religious. It's being integrated with some sort of shared normative worldview. Again, that doesn't really roll off the tongue. But if you are religious in a small town in America, that's a sign of your shared normativity. You are the same as everybody else. Yeah, that's probably conducive to happiness. But if you're religious and everybody else around you is not religious, you're probably not going to be as happy you're in Sweden. Although you'll be happy for other reasons if you're in Sweden. So you get universal health care. Let me finish up here with a final comment on, I guess, a critique of some of these studies. And that has to do with the definitional issues. Does how you define being religious or being spiritual relate to its pro-social uh, equivalents? Uh, some of you might remember the example of, has anybody here heard of the military spiritual fitness scale? Yeah, this is a thing that a lot of secular people got angry about a while back, and that was they found out that a lot of our soldiers were filling out these computerized measures for the VA that asked them questions to compute, you know, is this person doing okay? Are they at risk for things like depression or suicide? And it turns out uh, a secular group of soldiers made us think about this because a lot of the items that were coming up on this fitness measure were spiritual items. They were kind of like these here. I, I just took some from a variety of spiritual measures. 
they weren't only uh, things like, uh, you know, do you feel okay, are you depressed, but it was things like, do you find comfort in religion? Uh, how is your relationship with God? Does it contribute to your well-being? Well, as you might imagine, if you're a secular person and you're taking a test that you've been told measures well-being and you're getting a bunch of items that tap into religion, it makes you wonder, well, what's really being asked here? Now, the Army responded with, and they're correct, because a lot of psychological research does find that being more spiritual does tend to correlate with being happier and having higher mental health. Now, I color-coded these for a reason. You might uh, look at some of those items and say, well, actually, some of those, if you're not religious, you might still imagine yourself endorsing. So I would imagine many people here would say, my life has purpose and meaning, or I feel an emotional bond to you know, uh, all of humanity. You probably wouldn't endorse, though, those blue items at the beginning, though, that have to do with gods and spirits and whatnot. And that, that's the kernel of this critique. I'm not the only person to have made this critique, But what happens is is that the spirituality gets translated into itself a measure of well-being. Right now in psychology, there's a lot of hoo-ha about positive psychology. They're trying to do things like not just pathologize people, but talk about virtues and strengths, character strengths. Well, one of these, one of the more popular systems, has a strength, a character strength of transcendence. And under that definition are things like appreciation of beauty. That's nice. Gratitude, hope. And then they include religiousness as part of transcendent strength. What's the definition of religiousness, you might ask? Having coherent beliefs about the higher purpose and meaning of life. Did you know that's religion? You can see the problem right away here, and that is what they're doing really is, uh, in nerd terms, called a contamination of what's being used to predict the criteria. You're defining religiosity and spirituality even more as being well-being, happiness, meaning, purpose, and then you're using it to predict stuff that also is happiness, purpose. It gins up the correlation between the two. So a lot of the spiritual items that I showed you before are really things that I would argue have nothing to do with spirituality. They are things like feeling connected to people, feeling hope and gratitude. But they're defining that as being religious. So here's what happens when you correlate it with stuff like well-being. So some of the the religious well-being scale is often used in studies. Some of the items are like this. I believe that God is concerned about my problems. Now, if you say yes to that, you also tend to have lower depression and lower hopelessness. I guess that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that being religious is, because think about who says no to those types of questions. The non-religious would say no, because they'd say, I don't believe that God is concerned about my problems because he doesn't exist. Also, believers who don't think that God is concerned about their problems say no to questions like that. So you can see that this becomes a bait in the switch. Really, what that correlation finds is not that being spiritual or religious is related to lower well-being. Really, what it is is saying non-depressed religious people are not depressed, which, is again, doesn't exactly leap off the page. Here's another example. In, uh, in marital research, one of the big things that's being studied is whether people believe that their marriage is not only a civil institution, but is sanctified by God. So this is a characteristic called sanctification. It's imbuing your relationship with sacred qualities. When God, mar- God marries you, it's his business. And so what studies find is that people who believe that their marriage is sanctified tend to have fewer conflicts and get divorced less. So, for example, sanctification is... My marriage is influenced by God. And sure enough, if you think about that, uh, you know, non-religious people would say, no, my marriage is not sanctified by God, but probably also people who are religious but don't think that their marriage is going well also might say, no, I don't believe my marriage is sanctified. So the studies really don't find that religious belief itself is related to lower marital conflict. Really, uh, in this, like in this study, they didn't find that believers have better marital adjustment The problem is is that people keep describing these findings as if they say that. So another author used this study and said, religious couples communicate more effectively and use better conflict resolution compared to non-religious couples. That's not what this study found. So I would argue when you start to add these things up like I've been talking about and you're predicting this sort of happiness, pro-sociality, charity, being a good citizen, good neighbor, each of these things takes a sort of bite out of this. It carves out a little bit of yes more pro-social, but also they're more in-groupy. Or, yes, they're more pro-social, but only to people like them would be one qualification. Yes, religious people are more pro-social when it involves group functions. And a lot of those group functions, like I mentioned themselves, are not really religious. Getting together with people that are at social events is not specifically religious. Or, 
the self-selection effect. Uh, so the p- certain demographics select into religious groups. So things like more female, as I mentioned before, older people tend to be more church members. People who are joiners. If you live in a small town that's very churchy, you, if you're a joiner in that community, you're also a church member. Again, that doesn't necessarily show that being religious made those people, made them more pro-social. So I would argue, and this is what my magazine article really is asking, is what benefit does religious belief itself add once you consider these other factors? And obviously, by the way I'm talking, I would argue that it doesn't really add that much at all. So here's my advice for people uh, who want to go out there and and promulgate some of these ideas. Uh, You've uh, undoubtedly thought about some of these yourself, but to be critical consumers of some of these social science studies, uh, let me give you my Ten Commandments. It's easy to remember uh, when you're looking at some of these things based on, on what we just talked about. One I didn't mention so much today because I've talked about this in my previous talks, but is that often studies like this are based on things like just asking people, like that charity study, would you help somebody uh, if they needed help, that sort of thing. Well, clearly that has a self-report quality to it where some people are more likely to say they would than they actually would. And as you might imagine, religious people are, are more prone to this self-report positivity thing than non-religious people. That is, they tend to gin up their prediction about whether they would be pro-social or not. So you want to look at some of these studies with a critical eye of, did the study just simply ask people hypothetically, you know, would you commit a crime? I always wondered about that. What are you going to say? Yes, I would. Does, this, does the pro-social measure that the study looks at, does it, is it something that would benefit everybody? Is it universally pro-social? Or is it something along the lines of what we talked about earlier, and that is it benefits certain people? It would go to your group. I want to choose the people who benefit from that. And similar to that with number three, is it a private charity that these people are giving to, or is it something that benefits everybody, a public good? Um, if it's something that is the influence of religion, do they also include an equivalent secular influence. It doesn't even necessarily have to be the priming stuff we already talked about, but it could be things uh, along the lines of, you know, just giving a person a reminder of something secular and good, self-consciousness, community obligation. It doesn't necessarily mean it's uniquely religious, but often studies only include a religious condition. And also, do the studies look at potential negative effects? So many people like me would concede that religion could have positive effects, and often does but it often has effects that would be less savory, like group identity and that kind of thing. Also, like I mentioned, what about the context of the study? Is it something that only looked, for example, at highly religious places or like those well-being studies? Did they actually compare those with other areas that aren't so religious? In fact, I didn't mention this before, but some of these studies on generosity and sharing, when you do it even in a religious state where everybody's the same religion, you you have more... Uh, pro-social elements of religion. Uh, there was a study that was done, I think it was in Utah, where people were more generous, but when they did replicate the same study in, I think it was like North Carolina or something like that, the effect of religion dropped out. Well, probably, I would argue, that's because in Utah, there's more of a likelihood that other people would share your religion. Do the studies look at, at specifically identifying, as I tried to do with my study, just the belief itself, or do they get it all muddied up with things like group affiliation or church attendance? Do the studies actually have a comparison that goes beyond just the never church attenders or the people who say, I'm a nun? Do they include completely non-religious, atheist-type people as well? And the reason for that is, number nine, because I would argue you get a lot of these curved effects. In many cases, the atheist is very similar, even though they don't like to think of that, to the highly religious people in that they both share a confident worldview. It's the people in the middle that sort of don't have a, a strong worldview. And finally, like I mentioned at the end, uh, do the studies include definitions of religion and spirituality that are, are locked up with and contaminated with well-being? Actually, I just reviewed, somebody sent me a paper day, today to look at it, and it was measures of spirituality and things like interpersonal friendliness. Uh, and I wrote the same thing that I told you guys about. All you've done in the study show that warm people are warm. They're not going to be happy when they read that review. So, Let me leave you with a quote. This is appealing to secular people. This is Marcus Aurelius, the uh, Roman emperor. Live a good life. If there are gods and they are just, they will not care how devout you have been, but will welcome you based on the virtues you have lived by. If there are gods but unjust, then you should not want to worship them. If there are no gods, then you will be gone, but will have lived a noble life that will live on in the memories of your loved ones. Or you will have done a magazine article that people will remember. That's that guy that did that article. We should publicize his talk more and have him come here. 
Uh, I'd like to, before I close, I'd like to thank Jeremy Bean, who worked with me on the Free Inquiry Magazine article. Uh, he was uh, a great benefit to that. So now, uh, I guess we're going to do Q and A. All right, I'll come around with the mic and uh, please phrase your comment as a question. We'll get to as many of you as possible before we close. That was a great talk, Luke. Um, I think maybe you should have a, an 11th <coughs> commandment, maybe call it Kathy's commandment. Um, are the values that are measured actually good? Is being trusting or trusting other people, is that always a good thing? as opposed to not always trusting. Do people in religious communities trust the other people in their community just because they are religious? So that's one thing, but also, you know, divorce. If somebody's in a bad marriage, should is that a, a good thing that they aren't getting divorced? My question is, should that be the 11th commandment? <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, and I've, you know, just like... It's something that seems obvious to people kind of like us, crazy people like that, who would say, uh, are these values always uniformly good? Uh, like, we'll take like um, one, one example I made the other day was conformity to social values. I think I mentioned something that one guy said that religious people are more compliant with social norms or something like that. And he assumed, I guess, that by the way he worded that, that that's always a good thing to be compliant with social norms. And as a psychologist, you know, I would say... That's not always a good effect when the social norm is bad or when everybody's, why be a lemming and go along with that? It strikes as, you know, many secular people, that's just obvious, but many religious people, I would think, would, it would strike them as less obvious that conformity can be a bad thing if, you know, like, take, like, racism or, uh, like you mentioned, uh, conforming to gender norms or things like that. A person should stay married or things like that or stay at home. Um, it turns out that some of these things you find that, the, uh, depending on the characteristic, that, as you might imagine, the secular people are non-conforming, but sometimes the highly religious people are non-conforming, but for different reasons. And I found that that's actually a more interesting area to look at, is what are the reasons the person gives for something being good and bad, right or wrong, pro-social and not a pro-social. So, for example, you know, uh, if your value is you should stick with marriage no matter what and not get divorced, then it's always good to not get divorced. But if your value is you should stick as much as possible with a marriage when it's a good marriage. That's a value. But if it's not a good marriage and people are suffering, then it's better that you don't stay together. That's a more complicated value to stick with. It's harder to capture that. Um, and so you find some of these weird findings where actually sometimes highly religious people and highly secular people agree, but for different reasons. The highly religious person is often to say, that's wrong, it's always wrong because God says it's wrong. Whereas a, a secular person would say it's wrong because of the negative consequences. That is, it has negative effects on people. If it didn't have negative effects, then it wouldn't be wrong. You, you probably see this today with the gay marriage debate uh, in that uh, somebody would say, why is gay marriage wrong? It tells you more about their position than simply saying that it's right or wrong. When you did the, when you were talking about the laboratory experiments on in versus out group of whether it's another religious person or not, did that look at whether it was the same religion or what is the, you know, if it's a Christian and a Muslim paired together versus a Christian and an atheist and what's the effect of that? Yeah, a lot of the studies don't include that. I was just actually looking at some uh, of those too where they do things like um, depict the same person as being uh, religious or not and sometimes their counter condition to being religious is not mentioning religion. Or, the, you know, or like there are studies where the person is wearing a cross or not wearing a cross. And they just do a simple, the person is religious versus presumably nothing or whatever. Um, and you get sometimes different results. Uh, disappointingly enough for us, if the person is depicted as being no religion or atheist, it often doesn't make a difference. Everybody hates that person equally. That is, people seem to not only be set off by the A word, but just simply if this person says that they're, they don't have a religion, they're not as trusted as much. Now, where it becomes interesting, like you said, is, is that do they share that person's specific religion? There you find, as you might imagine, a sort of a linear effect. It's best if they're my religion. Uh, I'm speaking from this standpoint. Let's say I'm a subject who's going to share money with somebody. It's, it's optimal if they're my religion. It's slightly less good if they're a similar religion, and it goes down from there. You see this in some of the data on things like, you know, would you vote for a presidential candidate who is a, you know, a Catholic, a Jew, or whatever, and it goes down from there, and atheist or rock bottom, 
it seems as if, as you might imagine, that people do this sort of proximity distancing, uh, that something is good to the extent that it's similar to them. So I guess that's a long way of saying, if it's a, person, a different religion that's Christian, and I'm a Christian subject, then I don't really ding you that much. If it's a non-Christian religion, I ding you more. If it's not religion at all, if you're an atheist, I ding you even more, that kind of thing. You pointed out the, uh, the flaw in the studies about them collapsing the one end of the spectrum for the non-religious and, and needing to pull that out. I would also argue, and I'm like your comment on this, I think the other end of the scale is too collapsed as well. There are di- I have friends in a variety of different religiosity definitions, everything from Catholic to Unitarian Universalist. Um, so I think this n- narrow definition of religiosity they're using is, is, is equally as valid. Do you have anything about anybody ever looked at that? that what people are into now in social science is not only the degree of religion, but the, um, the way in which they practice their religion. So, for example, up there I have fundamentalist religion as opposed to uh, quest religion. A quest religion is defined as being a more open-ended. To the degree that that person is religious, they are things like, um, I might change my views over time, or religion is important, but I can see myself changing. Uh, all religions are in paths to the same goal. Whereas in a fundamentalist religion are people who, as the name implies, are more you know, uh, dichotomous about it. Things are either right or wrong. You're either the correct religion or the incorrect religion. And as I put them in different categories, that's what you see with some of the studies on like prejudice. High fundamental people tend to be more prejudiced. High quest people tend to be less prejudiced. Um, uh, the in-group, out-group thing, generous with strangers. Fundamentalist people tend to be less generous with strangers. High quest people tend, religious people tend to be more generous with strangers. So what people tend to do, yes, is not divide um, even just the degree of religiousness, but the way in which people are religious into those sorts of dimensions. Hi, um, you mentioned in uh, some of your some of your data the difference between saying somebody is a, a nun and an atheist or a non-believer strictly. Um, I've read before. I mean, I think Susan Jacoby also mentioned it that. There's a kind of a bias, at least in this country, where people, like, atheist is, like, the lowest thing you can be. Um, and there's kind of, like, nobody wants to call themselves an atheist. They'll call themselves, like, even agnostic is better or just, like, not very religious. So have you, have you ever, like, come across studies um, exploring that, that bias, how much it affects that group of, like, nuns? Because like, there's always speculation that like, there's actually more atheists in there than people who say they are. But do you know if there's any data to show like how much maybe or, or anything about that? that do you bias? mean and how people treat them or in their own attitudes? The, the um, I don't know because I think those are like self-identifying studies, right? Where you ask somebody and they say like I'm I'm none of the above. So I I don't know. Just I, I always see speculation from authors that are that say you know like there's only this percentage of people who say they're atheists, but there's probably more because there's probably a bias. But you never know like how much really. Yeah. Um, well, two things. One is that from their own perspective, that's why I asked that follow-up from you, that, that uh, from their own perspective, people who tend to be nuns, but when you ask questions about their sort of metaphysics, it turns out that they are what many people would define as atheists. They don't believe in a higher power. They don't believe there's anything after death. That sort of, when you ask those questions, but they're not labeling themselves as atheists, what's up with that? An atheist would say, why don't you just call yourself an atheist or whatever? Um, they're... they're they tend to be very similar. I actually did a study of, of the CFI membership where I looked at how people labeled themselves versus their actual belief system, and there really wasn't a lot of difference, except it was more, seemed to be more of a stylistic personality one, and that is, is that the people who were atheists that had atheistic beliefs, as opposed to the people who called themselves you know, spiritual but not religious, none, they sometimes differed on things like uh, upbringing, Often if somebody used to be from a highly religious childhood and they became non-religious, they were more likely to label themselves as atheists, probably in contradistinction between what they were raised as, whereas people who just were raised with indifferent parents, they weren't really anything, they don't believe in God, they might not label themselves as atheists because they're not, they don't view themselves as sort of fighting back against anything. They just, they don't really, they're more indifferentists or apathyists or something like that. Now, as far as this, uh, how people treat them, I think I mentioned that when I was talking to, to Kaz, is that is that sometimes you see that it makes a difference. The A word sets people off. So often atheists are perceived as being more boundary violators. 
you know, uh, community, anti-community people than people who say none. One of the cynical ways to look at that is that maybe religious people see nuns as potential fodder for conversion or that they're open to it or that even an agnostic is saying that they could be wrong, whereas the atheist is saying, no, religious people, you're wrong. And that's why they don't like them. But in other cases, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Like I mentioned, the judging somebody's interpersonal quality moral studies. I just read a paper the other day where when the person was portrayed as being not religious as opposed to atheist and they were judged as to how moral they were, it didn't make a difference. Um, so there people seem to be specifically keen in, if you don't have a religion, whether you call yourself an atheist or not, you're not moral. I think it kind of speaks to something that Kathy was saying about the tests and things we were talking about. Um, I, I guess to some extent, it's are we presupposing that all charities are good when you say certain groups give to charity more than other groups? I mean, I was reading today about how um, one of the DeVos's charities gave a million dollars to groups that were anti gay marriage. Now, that would come under the, you know, these people gave to charity. It's not necessarily a good charity. Uh, is there a danger of presupposing that all charities are good? Yeah, uh, that's, a good, that's a good point. Some of the things are, one of the things I've been looking at lately is whether the person, even the stuff that goes to charities, whether they care more which charity it is or whether they just simply say the government will make that distinction, you know, whether it's aid to Africa or starving people, I don't care. They and I've actually found some articles that show that one of the, and here's why I'm sort of harping on this, one of the reasons more religious people or more conservative people tend to prefer private charity is because they want to pick and choose who it goes to for reasons of discriminating, whether the person's worthy or not. So there are some studies that show that people can request more information, like would you like to give part of your money to charity, and they allow the person to click on it to get more information. Almost always people use that information to, to ding people when they don't view them as being deserving or not. Whereas, uh, and this is probably a distinction between the United States and Europe, a lot of Europeans specifically say that's why public giving is better than private charities because it's more, it goes to people who know more about the charity and can make a distinction. Some of you might have seen uh, last month they had this, I think it was the Tampa Bay Times did an expose on the, wor- the worst charities in the country. These are these ones that use professional solicitors like the firemen's or the whoever to, or cancer, like Make-A-Wish ones, um, to solicit donations. A lot of people were giving money not knowing that really almost all the money they give went to the group itself. It didn't get distributed to actually the people who needed it or the kids or things like that. One of the things that people point to in other countries that have more governmental redistribution is that um, private charity is inefficient because of that thing, and that is that the government or people who know better will make a, dis- will, will decide, will know more about what charities are worthless and which ones are actually better or not. And that a lot of American charity uh, is wasted because it's sort of a scam. So, um, yes, yeah, so, so your, your original point was, what about charities that are considered public charities that actually benefit a narrow group and things? Yeah, there, some of the studies don't make an effort to distinguish those things. In that case, I'm curious, you were t- um, pointing out um, um, people who are more likely to give to government versus private I wonder if there's a way to find out if more Christians pay their taxes or find ways out of it <laughs> versus atheists. Which is better, you know, at paying their taxes? I don't know. That's, that's interesting because the problem with that, some of that data is difficult to get at because, again, a self-report, you can't just ask people, did you cheat on your taxes or not? You could probably ask them about their preferences, like, you know, would you prefer not to pay as much in taxes? You could get that close. Um, there was a free inquiry article that uh, was in, I think, a couple months ago where they did the stories by Ryan Craig on and where he looked at, from a church perspective, how much of the money that, they could, that could be made by taxing churches and such that gets at something similar to that, and that is a lot of the things that religion, uh, religious institutions get a break on probably shouldn't be tax-deductible, like the Catholic Church would be one example of that. I guess the short answer is I don't know exactly that because of the reason of it's, you know, you don't want to ask people about that. But one thing that reminds me of is the, uh, my foil that I was debating this with, David Myers, was making the point that religious poor people uh, give more to charity than non-religious people. And he was citing that as evidence of the pro-sociality. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to look up the study that he, that he was referring to. It turns out that just poor people in general give more as a proportion of their income than rich people. Whether they're religious or not had nothing to do with it. Uh, So it was somewhat misleading, but that poor people uh, are more generous because they give a higher share of their income to charities than rich people. Empathy was one of the things they looked at. 
Um, I'll wrap up with a final question that I'm not sure if you'll know about or not, but um, have you looked at giving to um, political parties as opposed to charities? You mean as a source of charitable giving, how much do people give to political things? Based on their, their level of religiosity. Um, I do not know the answer to that. Fair enough. It was still a great talk. So. Okay. <laughs> Thank why you, do, Luke. Why do you have to finish on that, Jeff? <laughs> catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.